Okay, welcome everyone to another uh, episode of the XX Mormon podcast. Today, Elder Jackson and I are joined by a close friend of mine uh, who we will call Counselor, High Counselor Davis. Um, and just a little bit of introduction on Counselor Davis. Uh, he and I go way back. And I would say I forgot to mention him when we talked about the perfect people in the church. Um, but he's somebody who I would call uh, one of the perfect people who helped me on my journey through and actually out of Mormonism. Um, so just as a little story about Counselor Davis, when I finished high school, the stake rearranged our ward boundaries and all of my friends ended up in one ward and I was on my own. And so I had the choice to go to the YSA ward. And so I started going there instead. And Counselor Davis had been, he'd recently come home from his mission and uh, he knew my family um, but he and I didn't really know each other, but he ended up reaching out to me a lot when I was coming to activities and coming to church on Sunday. And he was a really good friend to me and helped me feel like I was fitting in. And then when I came home from my mission, uh, he's a good friend to me again as well. And uh, somebody who was a mentor to me, um, he helped me settle into a college major and uh, helped me get a foot in the door with a prestigious firm. Um, and then he probably, you probably don't know this counselor Davis, but I actually heard about you leaving the church through the grapevine um, while I was trying to make my way out or figure out if I was going to stay in. And one thing that I thought was, well, if he's out, maybe I can get out too. <laughs> um, so counselor, counselor Davis has just been a very good friend. Um, and he's always been like one stage of life ahead of me and kind of leading the way. And it's funny that it's even, you know, coming out of the church, he's still uh, been a leader and a friend to me. So, uh, yeah, without any further ado, welcome, Counselor Davis. Um, is there anything you'd like to say uh, before we get started? No, uh, thank you for, well, I guess, yes. Thank you for the <laughs> nice introduction. It was a heartfelt for sure. I, I appreciate that. Uh, I'm excited to be on the podcast, you know, listening to your prior episodes. I got, I got amped up about this and kind of sharing a little bit about me and, and, uh, yeah, the the X X Mo life. Okay, awesome. So, um, what we're going to talk about today is complacency and a follow the leader mentality uh, that you get while you're a Mormon. And um, so, to start this off, I just want to tell a little story. Um, kind of in my last few months in the church, I was a youth Sunday school teacher. As I find most people, as they're leaving the church, end up being Sunday school teachers. Um. But one Sunday, the, the ward chorister made us stand up or invited us or motioned us to stand up during the intermediate hymn for no reason. And I didn't stand up and I because I was comfortable. And I'm looking around at everybody standing up, and they're standing up because the person at the front of the room told them to stand up, not for any other reason. And I thought, you know what? I'm comfortable sitting, doing what I'm doing. I'm just going to sit here and watch. So I sat. And then after I went to Sunday school and I questioned my my Sunday school class. And I said, why'd you guys stand up? And they said, I don't know. The lady at the front of the church was standing up. And I was like, well, do you think that's a good reason? They're like, well, no. And I'm like, so why'd you do it? And they're like, well, well, I don't know. And so I told them about Adolf Eichmann. And so this was a, this was something I'd learned about while I was in university. And I mean, if you guys know about Godwin's law, it's this adage that um, any internet discussion, if it gets bigger and goes on long enough, it'll eventually involve a comparison to Nazis or Hitler. So I'm going to get it out <laughs> right of the way. 
<laughs> I am making a comparison to the LDS church to Nazis, but Adolf Eichmann, he was like the logistics manager for the Holocaust. So it was his job to arrange all the deportation of Jews and get them to extermination camps. So he's never like a boots on the ground SS guy hurting people or beating people, but he was the mastermind of the, the monstrosity kind of perpetuated the Holocaust from behind a desk. Um, and then he fled to Argentina. So Councillor Davis, you served your mission in Argentina, right? See, si. Yeah. <laughs> Did you meet a lot of Nazi war criminals on your mission or like? No, I didn't, but there are a lot of Germans kind of up in the, the region that I was in. Oh, really? So you did. Oh, you, yeah. may, you may have met a. In addition to learning Spanish, I learned a few German phrases that kind of got us in the door uh, in this certain town. It was it was kind of uncanny. Right. Right. Huh. OK. So, yeah, Eichmann ran away to Argentina. Uh, Mossad, the Israeli Secret Service, actually captured him and brought him back to Israel for trial in the 60s. There is a movie about this with Oscar Isaac. That was a like a Netflix movie. I can't remember what it was called. Um but they had to, they drugged him so that they could sneak him. And they said, oh, he's just sleepy. So they could sneak him on the airplane and everything. <laughs> it was a big operation, Nazi hunter operation. But then when he comes to Israel to stand trial, there was this woman, Hannah Arndt. She became a sociologist and she was a Holocaust survivor. And she attends part of the trial and she says he's banal, which means like ordinary or unexceptional. And she comes up with this phrase, the banality of evil, because the Holocaust was so evil and it was so terrible, but then these people are standing trial and they're like regular people you'd meet at a desk job. And it's like this evil, evil thing was just perpetuated by regular people. And that was kind of this idea she came up with is that atrocities aren't committed by evil people. They're committed by average, regular people who don't ask questions and just do what they're told. So I ended up telling my Sunday school class about this. I said, hey, standing up because somebody at the front of the room seems like a small thing. But if they can just get you to do that, what else are they going to get you to do? If you don't think or challenge or question the things they're asking you to do, you've built that habit. So if they start telling you to, you know, exterminate this wagon train coming from Missouri, you might just do it. So that's kind of the lead in to this idea of Mormons being um, just unquestioningly following the leader, not really thinking about what they're doing, only doing the things that they're told. They kind of, I think the thing that they have going for them is that the LDS church hasn't asked them to do something that is so completely wicked, you know? Um, but the idea and the infrastructure there for great atrocity, I think it's there. Mm-hmm. So do you guys have any thoughts or experiences you want to share about kind of just this passive follow the leader attitude within Mormonism? Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll share something quick. Uh, I, I think I may have told this story on the podcast before, but when I was, when I went through the temple, I was like, I had decided I already didn't think it was true. But I had decided that I was going to be like all in and that I was just going to live my life as a Pimo. And when I went through, I'm sitting there and my dad makes a joke about them, you know, oh, that's the hallway they use to bring the goat in to sacrifice it on the altar. And I told a friend about this and I said, 
you know, if they had brought a goat in, I would have been like, oh, okay, I get, you know, I guess this is what we do. That's how like on board I was, despite, despite not even believing it. And I was like, okay. And then he says to me, he says, yeah, but like, at what point is it not okay? At what point do you say, oh, maybe I should change my mind? And it was in that moment I realized I was like, oh, yeah. I'm like, even though I don't even believe this, I'm still like blindly following the leader here. It was just kind of this moment of realization that like <laughs> I, you know, it's the if your friends jump off a bridge, are you going to jump too? right? It's the just blindly following the leader. What about you, Counselor? Counselor Davis, do you have any any keen insight to bring to us from the stake? Well, you know, going back to the temple, like you do covenant to not, you know, speak ill of of people that are officiating in the church, right? For, from from beginning to end of Mormonism, you are kind of groomed to not question, um, you know, the decisions and the actions of leaders, both local and kind of the higher ups. I remember on my mission, there was an elders quorum president that was, he was, a, he was, he was insane. And it was a new area of the church. You know, Argentina is still quite young in the church and he was doing these ridiculous things. And I went to my zone leader and was like, what is he doing? Like, we need to stop him from do, doing these things. Cause we have these new members and these investigators and they're just like freaked out by his actions. And the zone leader's response was, no, no, no. He's, he's called to serve in that position. I'm like, no, he's crazy. Stop it. Like we need to stop him from doing those things. Yeah. And you no, know, even, even leaving the church and, you know, questioning things to family and friends, they want us to throw that scripture. Oh, you know, the Lord's ways are not, are not your ways. You know, his thoughts are higher than your thoughts. And you're like, and so there's like this, this idea that, yeah, you shouldn't understand these things. Mm-hmm. Like it's just, the structures in place that you you don't need to understand and and you shouldn't understand because you can't think at a celestial level. So yeah, that's kind of, you know, from beginning to end, you're not allowed to question. And if you do question, you know, the answer is, well, you just don't understand. Right. Right. I had a, I had a friend tell me the other day, I was talking to him about the book of Mormon and I was like, like, it's pretty obviously, you know, not a historical document. Right. And, and he said, oh, well, we don't know for sure yet. And I'm thinking, well, when will you know for sure? Like, when will you have gone through every piece of dirt on the American continent? And then at that point, do you say, like, oh, yeah, okay, I guess it's not true. And he told me, he said, with things like this, you just have to pick a side. You just have to pick a side. And I'm like, what? And I said, well, if the evidence is pointing one way, and he's like, okay, well, what if the evidence changes? And I said, then you go like with it, right? Yeah. And, uh, and, and he says, yeah, but it changes so often. So I'm just going to pick a side until it's definitive. And I'm thinking like, at what point? <laughs> and I'll trust my are you feelings. Stop? That, yeah. That was one thing I used to hide behind. And actually like uh, maybe a year or so before I left the church, there was a national geographic article or something where they'd done some satellite radar imaging and they'd found that there was like a big civilization under the Amazon rainforest. Mm -hmm. And I was like, Nephites probably, 
but nobody's going to excavate the Amazon rainforest. So we'll never know for sure. But that's probably Nephites because they talk about how they were buried. Some whole cities were buried in mudslides or whatever when Jesus came and that's it. Yep. That's, you know, so I, I empathize with that position because that was my position. And, and for the whole DNA Book of Mormon testing uh, debacle, like I thought, well, you know, when you enter into the Abrahamic covenant, the spirit changes your blood. Like that's how far I had gone down that road. Like, well, when they converted to Christ, their blood changed. Of course, right, the, DNA is, right. of course the DNA is not going to be there from, you know, from wherever, like from the Middle East. It's like their blood was changed. That is that is one step for because the way the, how far I took it was okay, they were light skinned, you know, Mediterranean Israelis, and then they become Lamanites. They're dark skinned. How do you change skin color without changing DNA? Of course, God made it look like He changed their appearance. The problem I ran into with that one is, well, why did God make their skin dark? Right. Uh. Next question, please. Like, <laughs> right. But, but you, you find these ways to defend it because yeah. you're starting with the assumption that, you know, well, That's they can't true. be wrong. Yeah. yeah. Like, yeah. The, you know, we sing follow the prophet in primary and like, I belong to the church of Jesus Christ. When I was like on my way out, but like not gone, I got away with saying like a lot more things, you know, when you're not, when you're still like in the in group, you can say more things right that now that you're out would be inappropriate and you're and i'm sitting there and i would be talking to somebody and they they said oh yeah like mormonism isn't a cult and we're talking about like these mlms and stuff they're like mlms are crazy like those are definitely a cult and whatever and i'm like what about like what about the church and they're like no 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 I'm like, I belong to the church. I'm like, I belong, you know, like I am owned. If my kid came home, I love my country, but if my kid came home singing a song about how they belong to the country, I'd be like, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm like, if things go south here, like we're leaving, you know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, like that idea of ownership is something you find in totalitarian ideology right you belong to the state or you belong to the fascist party or whatever it is the fatherland the motherland you know it rhymes with a lot of if you watch a world war ii movie the way either the russians or the germans talk about their troops is the same way the church talks about its members (laughs) yeah right (laughs) yeah um one thing on my end and this was like a wake-up call for me is one thing my wife always struggled with was the concept of polygamy. And it was just always a big question for her. And it was something like it, it would kind of come up every six months. But I remember her asking me as she was leaving the church, she said, if Thomas S. Monson told you to take a second wife, would you do it? And guess what? I know what the right answer is, which is obviously not, but I, my lying face came on and she was like, what, like, what would you do? And I'm like, babe, don't ask me that question. Just don't ask me because I don't know what I would do. Don't make me choose between you and God. I just, I can't even, I can't comprehend this. But that to me, it was like the fact that I can't answer this with a straight no is a problem. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, <laughs> I, I had a friend a few years ago. He was dating this girl and it was pretty serious. And she was a convert to the church. And she just learned about polygamy, which is weird because she had read like, 
a bunch of quote unquote anti stuff. Uh, and, and then she asked her boyfriend about it and they got talking and he, he knows all about the history of the church and everything. And he's been through the temple and he's like, yeah, like polygamy is a thing. And, and she, she asked him that question and he, he was like, yeah, I, I would. And, and she's like, well, and she like broke up with him right then and left the church. And <laughs> at the time I was like, what a fool, like leaving over something so little, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I'm yeah, like, wait I, a second. <laughs> there's a lot of men in the church who think polygamy is not a big deal, right? Like, and of course it's not a big deal when you are the beneficiary of the, the toxic system, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I remember home teaching a woman and her husband was not a member. And he's like, did you know there's, you know, members of the church that are practicing polygamy right now? I'm like, no, there's not. He's like, yeah, Russell Nelson. He's got two wives. Oh, and I'm yeah. like, in the moment, I'm like, it doesn't matter. And then thinking about it, like, that's a huge issue. Like in the eternities, he has two wives. Yeah. Like, that's a little left up. Like. How is how is that right in in any scenario, in right. any scenario, and he you know you know we don't practice polygamy but we do we do we practice it oh, in, yeah. in a significant way yeah with eternal marriage and there yeah, there like, there's oh, still ahead. members there's still members too who even like explicitly in this life I have a a friend whose dad was he's doing something for the church in Missouri. And you get all sorts of weird Mormons in Missouri because they're they're off to Zion, right? Yeah. And he's like helping this guy out. And he noticed that there is this woman always around the house. <laughs> and this guy's living off like church welfare and stuff. <laughs> and uh, and my friend's dad is like, hey, uh, what's going on with you and so-and-so? And he's like, oh, she's just uh, here helping out. And he's like, isn't your wife in like Utah still? He's, he's like, yep, yep, she's she's coming to join me soon. And he's like, got like two wives going on, basically. And so it's like, even explicitly, there are still tons of members who are like, it, oh, it's coming back, it's coming back. Well, do, like, I remember reading the church handbook, like one of the first times, and there was a big, and this would be the church handbook, you know, 15 years ago. But there's like a big section about polygamy and excommunicating polygamists and stuff like that. And it's like, but aren't they FLDS? Like the polygamists are just the FLDS and they, they're already excommunicated. Like, why does the church handbook need this section? Well, no, there's so many small little United Brethren, United Order groups. And I've, I've listened to some podcasts on this. Like they'll, they start out in wards and they'll have like little family home evenings. And then they invite a couple other couples. It's like a swingers thing, right? <laughs> and then they start... Oh, so-and-so's had a revelation that the principles to be restored and we're going to go live on this compound in Mexico. And like, it happens all the time in like Utah, Arizona, Idaho, like the more dense part of the Morador, right? Mm -hmm. Well, there's, yeah, there are schisms saying that, you know, the LDS church that we know, the, the prominent big one is, is gone astray and that polygamy is actually part of the true church and that these people have full full rights because it's, it's the higher law to practice this. And, and, uh, you know, uh, the brother and the quorum are, are off the rock and they've gone the wrong way. Which is yeah. so like the, which goes back to that leadership, you know, just following, following the leader, right. You just follow whoever you've decided is the leader, right. It's not like they have some magical calling 
it's like, well, yeah, I, you know, I like my bishop. Well, the prophet says not to do polygamy, but my bishop says so. And, you know, it just, you pick which leader you're following and then you put your blinders on and head on with it. Right. So I get, so I, there's another layer of this um, following the leader kind of thing. So we've talked about like just doing stupid things because the person in front of the room told you to do it. The other layer is, and Mark, you and I talked about this is not really doing anything, you know, just kind of sitting around waiting for the Lord to fix things or for the brethren to decide something. Right. So one thing, Mark, like when we were in YSA together, I think we did an elders quorum activity one time in a soup kitchen or something. But the reason why we did it there was because you helped out at soup kitchen every week. And it was like, you were just trying to do good stuff because you thought you should do good stuff. Whereas most of the other guys in the elders quorum, I think we kind of took the attitude of, well, I serve in the church, so I've done my community service, right? Right. Yeah. 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 They take it as this is the place where I serve. This is the place where I help out. And I think you miss helping so many people that that way. I think, Mark, you have a few stories on this, right? Um, Counselor Davis. Counselor oh, Davis has Counselor a few da- stories on that. Counselor Davis, you got a few <laughs> stories on, I, I think, things you've done to be like involved in the community and then the church catches up like two or three years later, right? Well, yeah, not necessarily. I just have a comment about, you know, people being members of the church, being involved in the community. Like uh, my wife and I, before we got married, we used to volunteer at the local food bank and it was, it was awesome. Like we were there every week for about seven months and, and it was fantastic. Then she got pregnant. We had a baby and we couldn't go, but it was like, you know, there was no responsibility or obligation to do it. And it was probably one of the most fulfilling things that her and I've done together ever. Um, and then when other people would hear about that, they're like, how do you have the time? And like, we both had substantial callings. Like we were both kind of prominent members in, in the new war that we had got into, uh, as a married couple. Um, but like, yeah, people, members of the church, like they pay their tithing. There's very few members that donate outside the church. Mm-hmm. And then they, and then they give a ton of time in the church and then they don't give any other time to like community groups that actually are doing good things in their local communities or pushing forward, like really good initiatives to better humanity. So yeah, just my wife has been very motivational in terms of like doing stuff outside of the church and she has, uh, um, her education is in, um, uh, develop development of, of, uh, developing countries. And so when we found out in 2015 of the, about this refugee crisis that was going on in, uh, in Syria and the areas around there, uh, we wanted to get involved. We wanted to host a, a refugee family. So we joined with four other families, none of which were LDS. And we hosted a family um, that had been living. They weren't Syrian, but they were, had been living in a, a refugee camp for 15 years. And I remember giving a talk in a combined priesthood relief society meeting about our, our initiative, you know, asking for helps. Cause we needed, we needed drivers for certain things to move people around to uh, appointments. Cause there was five families, you know, including us that was taking on this, this endeavor, but there were still a lot of moving parts, you know, doctor's appointments. They all had malaria when they arrived here and, and things like that. And, you know, some people put their hands up to, to help out and got a lot of comments like, hey, if you need anything, let me know. But there was never like any true commitment. Mm-hmm. 
And so that was uh, late 2015, and they arrived February 2016. And then April 2016, there was a general conference, um, and one of the wasn't even a, a quorum, uh, wasn't even one of the apostles. It was an elder from from the 70s, and he talked about the refugee crisis. And then, like interest in what we were doing, like blew up. Everyone wanted to get involved. Everyone wanted to know how our family was doing. And even my mother was like, hey, isn't it great that the apostles have kind of stamped your work now? And I'm like, I don't need the apostles to tell me that what I'm doing is good. Like, I know that it's good. I know that there is a need. And I, in my own right and abilities, can help these people. And it was just kind of like, I guess I should have been happy that people cared. But it was really discouraging that people didn't care. And that yeah. we we're all just kind of waiting for direction to, to do something. I think being on the flip side of that, Mark, um, like for me growing up in the church service was always something that was mandated. And so I actually like kick against the pricks of community service because it was like something I was forced to do, go do the food drive, go shovel a neighbor's drive, go do these, you know? And so I'm like, I'm not doing this stuff unless, you know, unless I want to, <laughs> um, but uh, sorry, I can't remember. I go, okay. So one other thing I remember just kind of observing as we were in the YSA ward together is you getting involved in these other things. And me as a member of the church being like, Mark, why don't you just like pay your tithing and give food fast offering? Like, why are you trying to be so above and be beyond on service? Like the, the Lord will tell us what we need to do. And right now we're building the kingdom of God. Why do you need to find avenues outside of that? I and I think there's a lot of members who have that mindset of yeah. like the, the church has a program. Why do you need to go do something beyond the program? Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, and I, I definitely had that, had that mindset. It was like, a, I even with, um, with like climate change, I was like, oh, well, they don't talk about it in general conference. Like general conference becomes your news, right? <laughs> You're talking about yeah. the Syrian refugee because, crisis. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody's yeah. like, Oh wow, there's there's something going on. There are people that need help. What? And and you you miss out on so much. And I've um, heard so many people back with that. With, oh, sorry. With, with climate change, I've yeah. had so many people say, "Oh well, Jesus will come, and you know it'll all be fine." I don't think that's the th that's the thing. Like the the conversation that came up with. Um, Bishop Jensen and I was that there is this deferral. There's this deferral to, you know, somebody else, to, mm -hmm. to Jesus, to, to the second coming. Um, it's just like, let's not do anything now. Cause at, at the end, it doesn't matter. The earth will be renewed in its paradisical glory. Like we don't have to do anything. My wife was so upset when we were first married that there was no talk about, you know, climate change. And I remember going to the bookstore, the LDS bookstore and finding a book about talks that mentioned taking care of the earth. And it was in the discount area. Was it, was it was a pamphlet? Like, no, <laughs> no, it was, it was a, it was a hardback book, but there was like seven copies of them and they were, and they were all in the discount area. Yeah. Like that's just, you know, nobody gave a damn about the earth. And so, you know, for $7, I picked up this book and my wife like devoured it. Cause she's like, yeah, finally some, some and none of them were prophets, prophets or apostles. They were all like just low lowlings that uh, <laughs> wanted to write around, uh, write about the earth and taking care of the earth. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. I'd say, like, I can say as an Albertan, where exploitation of the earth equals profit. Um, 
on top of that though it was like because i remember mark your wife moved to calgary from ontario but there are also a lot of other people from ontario kind of moved to calgary in the early 2000s and i'm in this ward and there's all these people are talking about environmental causes i'm like hey hey number one we don't talk about that in alberta number two we don't talk about that in the church like second coming (laughs) is going to take care of all of that. Like, why do you guys not believe enough in the second coming? Like, why do you care? Cause Jesus Christ is going to come and take care of all of this. Yeah. Right. I had a, I had a class at BYU, Idaho, and it was a uh, protected landscapes class. Really cool class. We talked about national parks and you know, whatever else. And there was this, we're, si- we're sitting there and it was, a, it's always a small class. This one we're sitting there and the, one of the other students in the class says, because we're talking about our relationship with nature, right? Are we part of nature? Are we above nature? Do we have God above nature than us? Then, you know, and and we're having this discussion. And then, of course, we start talking about climate change. And this one guy in in class, in a university class, starts talking about, oh, well, you know, the second coming and this is all part of God's plan is for, you know, things to get worse and everything. And I, I put up my hand. I was like, okay, <laughs> I was so finished at this point. I said, <laughs> okay, that is a very specifically Mormon perspective and not even like a church endorsed perspective. And <laughs> I, I said, I dare you to go into your profession and say that. I dare you to go in in the future and next time you have a conversation with somebody who's not in the church, say, oh yeah, no, well, Jesus is coming. So like, what are you even worried about with climate change? And, and he said, oh, well, but in this class. And I, I said, listen, man, I said, they've been saying Jesus is coming for so long. I'm like, you can't, you can't live off of that. I'm like you can't die on that hill because it just like, it doesn't work in the real world. And my professor was like, thanks for your insights, Alex. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, or yeah. Elder Jackson. Thanks for your insights, Elder <laughs> yeah. Jackson. Well, and that, that extends to other social issues as well with like poverty and racism. It's like, well, it says that we need to take care of the poor, but when Jesus comes, everything will be made right. And you're like, what about the whole body of Christ stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like we are the hands of Christ. We're the body of Christ. We should be doing his work, except we don't do anything. Mm-hmm. Well, I pay, I pay a fast offering. Yeah. And most of that gets paid to these families that take advantage of church welfare. So what are, what's going on? Like, what are you truly doing to be the body of Christ? Mm-hmm. I, um, sorry, do you know, Mark? Count, funny, counselor like Davis. As a, oh, sorry. <laughs> counselor Davis. As a, as a real TBM, even when I saw you, you and your wife getting involved with those refugees, I initially thought, oh, but the church must be doing something about this. The church is involved in humanitarian efforts. I just pay and forget about it. Like, how could the church not be taking care of refugees? <laughs> right? Yeah. I think there's a lot of members who think they just assume because the church is good at marketing their, their meager humanitarian efforts very, very well that it's like, well, I pay my tithing. The church does humanitarian work. Therefore... I well, they just bought an eight hundred million dollar beef farm in Florida, right? So that's that's important, right? Very humanitarian. Well, <laughs> well and they just my uh, bless my mother in law. Um, she I shouldn't I shouldn't talk bad about her. She sent us an article 
you know, being outside the church, we get these passive aggressive emails or, or notes or whatever. And Hey, look, yeah. you know, the church donated $20 million to the vaccine rollout in the United States. It's like $20 million. They make that an interest on their investments in like an hour. Yeah. Like that's, that's not like, like relatively that's, you know, to the rest of us, that's a lot of money, but to the church that is, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars in assets, like that's nothing. Mm-hmm. And talk about oh, the yeah. widow's might, like do as I say, not as I do. It's, it's just the cognitive dissidence is just so hard to, to deal with. Yeah. Yeah. But you, but you roll with it. Like, yeah, you, you just you like, know. well, well, I even asked, so my, my calling, I wasn't a Sunday school teacher when I uh, left the church. I was actually a ward clerk uh, for the third time. And I was there chatting with the bishop and he knew that my wife was out and, you know, she didn't wear garments, didn't pay tithing, didn't want to make, didn't want to pay, didn't want me to pay tithing. She's like, half of that money is mine. You're not paying tithing on half of that. I'm like, okay. So, and the bishop was cool. And, and we had a lot of conversations and I said, why, why does the church buy so many assets? Like, why do they invest? Why don't they give? Do you think Jesus would buy, you know, ranches in Texas? Uh, Is that what Jesus would do? And he, and his response was, very corporate. He said, well, it's just good asset management, right? It's like, I don't think Jesus cares about asset management, right? The church has well, like more than enough to take care of itself for hundreds of years. Mm -hmm. Why are they collecting tithing? Why aren't they like redistributing the wealth? Like that's, that's the, I think the number one issue in the United States is the wealth disparity and Mm -hmm. the church is, has its foot on its, on the gas and is, is growing that disparity at an exponential rate. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and they, uh, I love how right before the pandemic, they, uh, the hundred billion or whatever comes out and they say, oh, well, it's for a rainy day. And then literally everything <laughs> falls apart and they're like, it's um, like, a rain- like if they're, yeah, where is a rainier day than this one? Right. It's like, are you saving it for when Jesus comes and then you don't need money anymore anyways? Like when the government's collapse and like currency ceases to exist like, yeah yeah it's like okay mm-hmm. no just, like, just imagine jesus coming down okay and he's like praise and blessings upon you for collecting a hundred billion dollars in marketable <laughs> securities well done my good and faithful servants for thou hast grown my nest egg <laughs> <laughs> it's like at the end of a video game when it tallies up all your points and it's like yeah. and it's going up and up and up and it's like oh the Mormons won the game that's for, yeah, for, that, <laughs> that's that's how God will decide which church is true one of the hey but that like that feeds into the book of Mormon where like if you're blessed you're blessed is you're righteous right so there is a prosperity gospel mm-hmm. in the LDS church so I know like my wife accidentally brought it up with my parents She and very casually, what do you think about the church's fund? And they're like, I think it's good financial management. And it like, it was very, and I'm like, I, I remember, I'm looking at her across the table. Don't talk about this. Just don't. Right. But because I knew what the answer would be, it's, it's validation of the blessings of the book of Mormon. We have a hundred billion dollars because we're righteous because we'll be blessed and prospered in the land if we're righteous. So people who have money are righteous. People who don't have money are being cursed. Right. 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 So the, the bank Joseph Smith started 
that they weren't being righteous enough for it to succeed then, eh? Not at that time. Not at that right. time, right. It, well, the, it was the church was too wicked. Joseph Smith was righteous, but the church was oh, too wicked. yeah, that makes sense. Collectively, right? Right, yeah. Okay. They collectively were not righteous enough to accept the United whatever and uh, and were wicked, and that's why the bank collapsed. Okay, that makes sense. Thanks for thanks yeah. for clarifying that for me, Bishop. Anytime, anytime guys. That's why they call me Bishop. <laughs> the welfare specialist here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Oh boy. <laughs> okay, so anything on anything else on complacency, anything else on follow the leader you guys want to talk about, or have we sufficiently uh beaten this this horse in the membership of the church? I, I think, you know, at the end of the day, um, you know, Andrew Art, uh, or Bishop, 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 sorry, Bishop, Bishop, all sorry, things Bishop. must be done in wisdom and order in my podcast. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know, at the end of the day, you know, um, being called out by family and friends for my behavior, i.e. leaving the church and being told that I was being led away by Satan, like to my face by loved ones yeah. was, was kind of overwhelming. Um, but like, I guess with this in mind, like they're only doing what they've been mm-hmm. groomed to right. say and do. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. And so kind of like stop holding them accountable for yeah. the dumping of garbage on me and my family. And like, like, you know, the whole thing about prosperity, like we've done okay since we've left the church, right. We've, we've kind of found our footing and we have an, a new community and we're, we're happy and, you know, we we're we're doing okay right and just when i throw those things at my family members and they're like well well yeah so that doesn't matter it doesn't matter right you're still being led away by satan and then just like not taking it personally but it's just just the dogma that they're mm-hmm. speaking and that's how they how they can continue to exist in their belief structure and and just like forgiving them like that uh holocaust survivor forgave the nazis for yeah. the travesties and like the the things that they committed Right. There, exa- yeah. Sorry. I, you know, forgot to bring that in because I think that's part of getting over being an ex-Mormon and getting past anger and letting the thing go is realizing that the people in the church are very perfect. It's just, they're part of something very, very corrupt and controlling. Yeah. Right. Yeah. They're, they're, they're part of the machine. And that ties in nicely with something I wanted to say is even when we leave, even when we're out and gone, we can still find things that that we attach ourselves to and that we blindly follow, right? How many people, you know, hero worship celebrities or political leaders, right, of any sort. And so I think we need to take the lessons that we learned from being part of this and apply it to other things as well and not just say this is the only space where it does that. Well, do you, yeah. Funny that you mentioned that is that I have had t- trouble committing to any cause of any kind since I've left the church because Mm -hmm. I'm so distrust. I knew who I was when I was in the church and I don't want to be like that again. So even with Sam Young and his March on Salt Lake, so many people were getting so behind him that I was like, I'm even uncomfortable with this guy because he has attracted such a loyal following. What is there anything he could say to his followers that they would not do because I'm starting to feel uncomfortable because of how, how loyal the group's getting. Mm-hmm. And it it's become hard for me to back any cause with any kind of loyalty, even political. It's like, who would you vote for? I'm like, nobody. 
I would just not vote. Why not? I, it's not a policy thing. It's a, I'm scared <laughs> of who I could become if I start aligning myself with an ideology of any kind. Mm-hmm. There, we have a, a, a couple of non-member friends in Utah and they call the Mormons in Utah scoops because their brains have been scooped out of their mind, right, out, of right. the, out of their skull. Right. Yeah. And that's the same thing. Like there, we need this, we need, we need a leader. We need a direction to follow because apparently we're incompetent as humans to kind of forge our own path and find what, what is true, what is right, what is, you know, good in life. We had a family ask us, okay, now that you're not in the church, what do you teach your kids? Mm. (laughs) What do you mean? What do we teach our kids? (laughs) We teach our kids the universal laws of love, tolerance, honesty, kindness, service. Like those things don't go away because they transcend, you know, Mormonism. They transcend all religions. Like they, they just are good and we know that they're good and we don't need a doctrine or a leader to, to force it down our throats. Mm -hmm. Amen. Yeah. I would say to that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Any opposed by the same sign. (laughs) (laughs) 